For the first time in decades, pedestrians and bicyclists can now travel over New York City's oldest standing bridge. The High Bridge, connecting Washington Heights in Manhattan to High Bridge in the Bronx, reopened to the public last month after being closed for more than 40 years. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A new children's book aims to educate kids about the High Bridge. It's called The Lowdown on the High Bridge, the story of how New York City got its water. It's written by none other than Sonia Manzano, best known as Maria on Sesame Street. Manzano grew up in the Bronx. She joins us today in the studio. Sonia, it's a pleasure to have you on Cityscape. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to get into your book. We're going to talk about the High Bridge, but there is so much more I want to ask you about your life Uh and your career. You're a native New Yorker, right? Yes, born in Manhattan, but raised in the Bronx. You were raised in the Bronx. Where in the Bronx? We, uh, our journey was uh, 3rd Avenue around Cortona Park, and then we moved to Southern Boulevard, and uh, then we moved to Theory Avenue as we tried to claw our way out of the inner city into a private home, uh, the typical story. What was your neighborhood like when you were growing up? Oh, uh, it was all Puerto Ricans. It was very congested. The 3rd Avenue elevated train was still up. And it ran right by our fourth floor window. Mm. Uh, My view of the world was from our fourth floor window as I watched uh, the people get off of the Third Avenue L and the people congregate around the bodega at um, at the the threshold of our building. Uh, It was a, a a vibrant time, I think. When was the last time you were back? I went back to 3rd Avenue. The exact address was 3858 3rd Avenue. And I was uh, surprised that where there was a tenement building with four floors and fire escapes that housed four families per floor, there was one single family home on that site. Wow. One home. (laughs) One home with the same address. And, of course, the 3rd Avenue elevator train uh, is long gone. It was gone in the 70s. Uh, so it's a very it's the neighborhood is completely unrecognizable to me. But I did recognize Cretona Park, and I did recognize the the pool we used to go to the Cretona Pool. And my elementary school PS4 is still there, <laughs> and the stone outcropping I used to scare my mother by climbing up is still there. However, it is enclosed in a building. <laughs> Where is home now? Uh, the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And what color is your kitchen? It's green. It's a celery green. Now, that that's an interesting question. I asked because I know when you were growing up, your parents' kitchen was always turquoise, <laughs> and you wanted it to be beige. Yes, because I was a New Yorican and born here, uh, as we established, my I didn't understand my parents and their sensibility of the Caribbean. So my I think they tried to create the Caribbean colors in our decor. You know, since there was flowers everywhere and and, and turquoise and, and hot pink. But uh, actually, I just had a turquoise kitchen, to tell you the truth. And I, like a month ago, we changed it to to soothing celery green. Is that right? Yeah. How connected did you feel to Puerto Rican culture while you were growing up? Or is that something that you tried to shed because you wanted to be a kid from the mainland? 
Well, it was both. It was a very, uh, I was very conflicted about what, you know, my Puerto Rican culture. And how could I not be? My parents would sit around and talk about the horrible poverty that they had escaped, uh, how there was no food for anyone, how there was, you know, no jobs for anyone. And this is Puerto Rico during the Depression and how it must have been horrible if they just came uh, to foreign lands, to the mainland. And at the same moment, they burst into a beautiful song about Puerto Rico. So I'd think like, well, which is it? Is it an awful place or is it a lovely place? Uh, so I had two two signals from them. You went to the High School of the Performing Arts here Correct. in New York City. Right. Was your heart always set on being a performer, even as a little girl? Not really. Uh, I always loved television, though, and I loved musicals. I didn't see what my place was going to be in that kind of career because at that time you never saw people of color on television and that was the only form of entertainment that we had. Uh, you never saw people who lived in the same neighborhood as I lived either. So that was that was very shocking. But I've always loved uh, uh, performing and, and uh, a teacher said to me that I should go to performing arts. My dreams was to be a secretary your dreams. My dream as a as a junior high school student, as a, me and my my girlfriends and I would chat about our life, and it would be like we're going to be secretaries, we're going to be bookkeepers, and we're going to move out of the Bronx. I mean, that was our. We were going to go to a different Roosevelt world high for school. women back then. A different then. world, right? Right, of course. And this teacher said, "No, you should go to this uh, this special school that I had never heard of," and. Boy, it was my mind blown if I could bring up, uh, express myself in a 60s phrase when I got to performing arts. And I met all of the kids from so many different lifestyles. Kids from Brooklyn, kids from Manhattan, kids that went to Europe every year. Sophisticated kids. And then you went off to college. And then I went off to college. And I struggled because I had a very good education by South Bronx standards, but when I was in this middle-class school, a lot of my basic skills were lacking, and I had to catch up. So when I got into uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University, it was, again, on an audition because my grades were so poor. So it's kind of like, you know, how African-American boys go to school on sports scholarships often. That's the only way they can get into a college. The only way I could get into a college was to be, go on an audition. I, I, I would have done anything. Acting was accessible to me. Then you came back to New York to be a part of the original production of Godspell off-Broadway. Right. As a matter of fact, Godspell was a production at Carnegie Mellon University. It was John Michael Tablax, who was the director-creator. It was his senior project. So we did this crazy show parables, Jesus Christ, the story, his story, the greatest story ever told, except we were doing it like hippie clowns <laughs> <laughs> with that 60 sensibility. And, uh, came, and it came to New York and it, it became a fantastic hit. It was remarkable. What was it like for you, this kid from the South Bronx, to be in this production of this show off-Broadway? I've learned so much about myself. I learned that I had a sense of humor. I learned that I could be funny and I... 
I felt very empowered when I was on stage. I felt like nobody could touch me and I could do whatever I wanted and I could control the audience by my antics. And that was a, a, a really empowering sensibility that I embraced. You've also appeared on the New York stage in the Vagina Monologues. Yeah. Now, yes. was it a shock for people that Maria from Sesame Street was in the Vagina <laughs> Monologues? I think a few people were shocked. Because this was of, in 2002, right? I know. There's a lot of salty language in the, in that uh, wonderful, wonderful play. But I was able to um, to bring in a very funny Sesame Street um, uh, reference when uh, there's a part of Vagina Monologues where we all discuss what C stands for, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to say. <laughs> and uh, and then I was able to quip, gee, I always, Cookie Monster always told me that C stood for <laughs> cookie, not <laughs> what we were referring yeah. to as uh, what the letter C stood for. So when did you join Sesame Street? I joined the cast in, let's see, it was first aired in 69, so I, uh, in 71. The target audience were African-American kids, that we were going to uh, help them start school uh, with their basic cognitive skills so they could start school on an even level with their middle-class peers. And then everybody had a platform in the 60s. The Latinos on the West Coast said, if you have African-Americans on the show for African-American children, we want Latino representation. So uh, lo and behold, uh, that's when I got cast. I was doing Godspell in the city, and I got cast. You were one of the, if not the, first Latina on a television series, right? Yes, I really I really was. I came on, and uh, Raul Juliac was on with me, and Emilio Delgado from the West Coast came on, but I was, uh, the you know, the first Latina on t- national television. It's remarkable. As you can see, I'm stuttering over this, over <laughs> saying it because I still can't believe it. How big of a responsibility has it been for you to represent the Latino community on television? Completely unexpected, something I never bargained for. I was a kid from the Bronx. Here I am in a television stu- studio, n- not used to that either. And uh, uh, Matt Robinson, who was the original Gordon, says to me, you're not just here as an actor, you know. You have to represent the image of Latinos on this show. And I said, me? When did I become a spokesperson? Mm. You know, when did I get elected? You know, I can't deal with Big Bird. (laughs) 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 But uh, I think that I, I, um, uh, I, I began to embrace it. And I did have a little impact. There used to be a, a fruit stand on on uh, on Sesame Street, and there were apples and pears and bananas in the a fruit cart, a push cart. Mm-hmm. Apples and pears and bananas. And I went to the uh, producer and I said, I think as a Puerto Rican, we have to have some plantains and juca on this f- cart. And they said, Very good idea, thank you. And they and they did it. So so I kind of started to impact the show in small ways like that to become. Uh, the representative that a small change that could have a very very big impact for those watching yes, the show yes yes of uh, the images that we see on television are remarkably strong and stay with us what do you think is the responsibility of children's television well it's it's changed so much it um sesame street was the first to use television as uh to teach basic things counting letters, as you know. I think that 
Now, every children's show is hardcore information. What can you learn from the show? What do you take away from the show? And I think it's because we've become data conscious since computers and everything has to be quantified. So, but now I'm hoping that, I mean, there's just, it's just like too much information. There's no, there's no opportunity now to dream and to imagine, which was on Sesame Street. It was also that. It was cognitive skills, but the ability to dream and infer. So now kids' shows are all information, but I think that we're going back to children being allowed to infer and guess and come to their own conclusions about life. Now, you were in your mid-20s when you became Maria on Sesame Street. Maria, though, was a teenager when she came on the scene, right? Right, right, right. I was a teenager. I ran a lending, a secondhand bookstore was my first job on Sesame Street, and then a fix-it shop. But but, uh, a reason that we're successful is, at that time, Sesame Street, was that uh, the cast was allowed to age. So it wasn't like I was the ingenue, let's say, and had to stay an ingenue no matter how old I got. That wasn't the case. So you saw Maria as sort of a young person. I looked like a teen at that time. Mm-hmm. And then I got, uh, when I fell in love, so did Maria. When I had a baby, so did Maria. When I got married, so did Maria. And I was able to write about all of that, all of those events on the show. I call it the golden years of Sesame Street, if I do say so myself. The 80s when I was like really visible in writing about my love life. Right. You the did first not reality only show. just act on Sesame Street, you wrote and yeah. you still write for Sesame Street? Yeah, I haven't written. The last item I wrote for the show was uh, I had the pleasure of introducing uh, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, mm. the other Sonia from the Bronx. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say, <laughs> the other Sonia from the Bronx. So uh, she, ca- she came on the show uh, through my efforts and, f- and efforts of other people that I know. And so, of course, I wrote for her. You've won, what, 15 Emmys? 15 Emmys as, as part of the writing staff of, of Sesame Street. And, and uh, that's, uh, I never would have believed I could have written anything because writing was something that was not accessible to me as a, as a little girl. I always tell a crummy joke of we had no books in the house, no pencils, no paper, and my father in despair having to write down a phone number and grabbing my mother's eyebrow pencil and <laughs> scribbling it on the kitchen wall uh, because we didn't have any, you know, writing was not something in, in the house. It was. But it sounds like you've just drawn from your own personal experiences. Yeah, yes. For the show. Yes, yes. I always, even when I wrote for Ernie and Bert, it was some some experience or some feeling that I had as a little kid in the Bronx because I thought, I always thought of Sesame Street as, wow, I wish it had been around when I was a kid. And I always saw the kid watching the show and needing sanctuary for a moment and order. Had you seen Sesame Street before you auditioned for the role of Maria and got on the show? Yes, I was at Carnegie Mellon University and I walked into the student union and there was James Earl Jones reciting the alphabet A, B, C <laughs> in a very deliberate manner, you know, and while the letters flashed over his head and it was so compelling, I flipped. I thought it was a show that taught lip reading. <laughs> I did. And then when I saw Susan and Gordon come on, this beautiful black couple from this stoop that looked just like all the neighborhoods I had lived in, 
It was really outrageous. It truly was. What's that set like, by the way? Well, it's different now, but at that time it was dark. I mean, it was just like the inner city, and then there were these po- these bright puppets that we had to live with. It was very real. The sensibility on the set was encouraging and warm and, and cheerful, and everybody was on the same page. I mean, we were going, we were on a mission, we were going to change society. All racist people would be long gone after, you know, they would die off, obviously. And then this new generation, even President Johnson was was interested in creating the great society. We were going to uh, to change everything. Have you heard from a lot of young Latinos over the years who've thanked you for your role on the show, for inspiring them? All the time. All the time. People have said to me, I never would have gone into show business like newscasters, you know, I'll go out to, there'll be a lot of newscasters. I never would have assumed that I could be on television if I hadn't seen you. It's just that one image that of, that they saw me and they said, if she could be on television, I could be on television. So that's always been gratifying. And of course, the, then there are the people who burst into tears the minute they see me. And that's because I've reminded them of sitting on their mother's laps on milky afternoons at four o'clock and tuning in. How does that make you feel? That's very old. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, uh, you're wonderful. It's wonderful that I've been, uh, uh, I think I have touched lives and, and people say, do, do you realize that you have done that? And yes, I, I do. I what do. do young Sesame Street fans typically want to know from you? Well, my fans are now 40 years old, most most of my fans, uh, because they've grown on the show. And uh, a big question was, are, am I really married to Luis? Am I really married to mm-hmm. Emilio Delgado? Because, the answer uh, is? The answer is, we are not really married. But uh, I'll tell you a quick story. We were traveling together, Emilio and I, and a woman stopped us and said how wonderful it was that her children should see real love on Sesame Street. And we said to her, you know, we got to tell you that we're not really married. She sucked in her breath and said, well, as long as you really love each other. <laughs> <laughs> and you're that good of an actress, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> I see yes. what you're playing on, on the show. What is your favorite Sesame Street memory? Uh, I think it was when we did the goodbye, Mr. Hooper, Mm. Mr. Hooper died Yeah, and we could have gone a lot of ways. And the producer at that time, Delcy Singer said, no, let's, we've been not shortchanging kids. Let's give them the truth. Uh, and this is an opportunity to talk about death. There was nothing about death out there for children, any explanation, about what happens, and uh, it, a brilliant script. That's when I was most proud of being part of the show, and I wasn't a writer at that time, so that was a, a marvelous moment. And the other remarkable day was when Stevie Wonder was on, and he did Superstition. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the whole place rocked. And it was another moment where white people, black people, little kids, older kids, everybody was on the same page, and it was the Stevie Wonder page on Sesame Street. I was going to ask you the question about celebrity guests because Sesame Street has featured a number of celebrity guests over the years, and I was going to ask who have been your favorites. Well, certainly uh, Ray Charles also, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, and Tony Bennett. And this is because these people were famous when I was born. Mm -hmm. Now it's gone, it got to the point where... Uh, the I don't know who the famous people are sometimes because I was uh, I went to the set and there was this beautiful beautiful girl playing singing and playing the piano. This was 
years ago. And uh, she came up to me. She said, oh, Maria, I'm so happy to meet you. You were my favorite. And I said, oh, thank you very much. I said, and I asked somebody, who is that beautiful girl with that beautiful voice? And it was Alicia Keys. Huh. Now, this was before Le- Alicia Keys was as big as she is now. But I thought it was funny that, you know, I, you know, after 40 years of being on the show, things flip like that. Do you answer as much to Maria as you do to Sonia? I do. I do. I, I all, all of the humans on the show, we don't even know what our names are <laughs> <laughs> anymore. All of the humans on the show. Yeah. Let's talk about the Muppets. Yes. Have you ever met a Muppet you didn't like? Um, no, I love all of the Muppets, but my favorite is Oscar the Grouch. Why? Because he's very nuanced and you could either be talking to a 40-year-old or an 8-year-old. And he doesn't have a high voice. You know, he just has a low voice. I think he's a great character. Well, in addition to writing for Sesame Street, you've also written children's books, including one called No Dogs Allowed, which was made into a musical. Yes, yes, yes. Your latest children's book is about New York City's oldest standing bridge that connects Manhattan and the Bronx. It's called The Lowdown on the High Bridge, the story of how New York City got its water. What inspired you to write a book about the High Bridge? Actually, I was inspired by the by the Bronx Children's Museum or the initiative of the Bronx Children's Museum. It does not exist in the traditional sense. It doesn't have walls. It doesn't have walls. It's not in a building. It's The Bronx is the only borough without a children's museum. It has a, a bus that travels around to schools, and it has a lot of outreach programs. One of the outreach programs was to include children of the Bronx in the opening of this new bridge. So uh, uh, Carla Precht, the executive director of the the museum that's going to happen, you know, said we should have a book about it. So I volunteered my services. I said, I love to write. Let me write it for you. And I'll consider it my donation to the efforts of creating this this museum. So um, we've uh, I, I wrote the book and she got a uh, an, an illustrator. And it's, a, you know, a funny little story about the life story of this neglected bridge and how now everybody can uh, can be a part of it. And we're hoping that kids take some pride in their neighborhood. And we're trying to include kids in all of the things that go on in the Bronx that might affect them. This certainly does because they can get to the pool in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What fascinates you most about the history of the High Bridge? Uh, That all the previous immigrant groups that lived there, the waves of the immigrant groups, the, the Irish who lived there first, and then uh, the Germans who came later. And, you, you know, there's this whole, that there were farms there. I think that's a fascinating idea for children. And that it, it keeps changing. And, and the, last, the last page of the book uh, shows how there are people from Africa there and China there. So the, the, the fact that a, a neighborhood keeps changing and evolving after 40 years, the High Bridge is now reopened to pedestrian traffic. Have you had the opportunity to walk across it? Uh, yes, we did. Actually, I walked across it before it opened because I'm such a special person, <laughs> don't you know? And uh, uh, yes, we walked across it. Uh, we met, uh, there were two contingencies. There was Carol Brewer, borough president of Manhattan, and Ruben Diaz, borough president of the Bronx. And we walked across and met in the middle for the press conference. And Jose Serrano said, uh, I feel 
like we're the Jets and the Sharks. We're walking <laughs> across. And uh, so we walked across there and we had the press conference and uh, and everybody spoke about the bridge. And, and I haven't been. How beautiful and is it up there? I mean, it's beautiful. It's it's beautiful. It's very high up. It's hard to imagine that when it was first built, it didn't have that high safety fences. And it's pretty high up. Uh, but those can, it was a simpler time, I, I suppose. How familiar were you with the High Bridge growing up in the Bronx? Never heard of it. Hmm. Never heard of it. I'm not from the High Bridge area. I'm right. from the South Bronx mm-hmm. area. But uh, it's remarkable to me that I never heard of it. And But people on Facebook are saying, oh, I remember. I used to cross that and meet my father halfway when he came home from work from Manhattan. Hopefully this will change soon. But how astonished are you, Sonia, that the Bronx has been without a brick-and-mortar children's museum for so long? It's the poorest section of one of the poorest sections of the United States. So it's remarkable to me that it doesn't have uh, the kids who need it the most don't have a a museum. And it's so, uh, you know, we don't have to give kids answers. We just have to create the environment for them to expand their minds. So, you know, you get so much more for your buck, you know, if you just have a place for them to go and explore, explore the world around them. You were inducted into the Bronx Hall of Fame in 2004. What an accomplishment was that for you? That was hilarious. I thought that was, uh, uh, I think my name is still up there. Uh, We had a a, a wonderful time, and I was flattered to be in such wonderful company. In addition to everything else you do, you also travel the country giving lectures, some with such fantastic names like, would Elmo make a good board member, and can a Muppet be a health nut? Right. What issues do you like to talk about most when you're out there? Well, lately I like to talk about what I touched upon before, um, that we're data-based, a data obsessed with teaching children, and I all and that we have to loosen up on those on those aspects and make sure that uh, there's time for them to imagine. And I also like to talk about critical thinking. I think as a society, we've lost our capacity for it. We want simple answers to complex questions. Should I eat bread? Oh, duh. You know, I mean, it all depends. Should kids watch television? That's the big one. Uh, How young should they be? You know, when we started Sesame Street, uh, it was for preschoolers, like which was four-year-olds. Now kids are watching it too. So things change. So this, we, we're, but we've become a society that wants the right answer. This is it, and that's not American in my in my uh, experience so far. So those are the things that I talk about. Now you also have another new book coming out, right? Yes, yes. It's called. Uh, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. And it is for uh, young adults or 12 12 years old and up. And it is my story of my journey up until when I got uh, cast as as Maria on Sesame Street. Up until. That's it. That's where it stops. Yeah. So I uh, I talk about um, what the Bronx was like at that time and how I experienced my parents and how I experienced a school. And it should be out uh, uh, August 25th, as a matter of fact, is uh, the pub date. When will it be the right time for Maria to leave Sesame Street? 
I have left Sesame Street. Is that right? Because is, for, yes. I thought you were still on Sesame Street. I This is the first year that I uh, have not gone back to record any shows. Is that right? It's the Yes. It seemed like my last year was the 45th year. They went into their 46th year. And... Uh, what prompted that decision to finally walk away from Sesame Street? I was, I was, I'm so involved with the the books that I'm writing now, and uh, and it was a long time being on the show, and I th- think that it was time for me to do other things. Was it hard to walk away? Not really. It 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 really wasn't. I mean, it was and it wasn't. It's uh, uh it's been part of my life. I think I'll always be Maria. I can solve. The crisis in the Middle East, but I will always be known as Maria. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My obituary will say, uh, solve the problem in the Middle East, but new big bird. I mean, that's going to be what people are going to uh, associate with me, uh, to me for the, for the rest of my life. Is that okay with you? Yes. Yes. There could be worse things could happen to me than only being associated with Sesame Street. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think I will be associated with other projects. Well, you no longer live there. You no longer live on Sesame Street. Maria no longer lives there. But my final question for you, Sonia, is can you tell me how to get how to get to Sesame Street? And I have to answer, I have to answer that question with... Practice, practice, practice. (laughs) (laughs) Sonia, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That was Sonia Manzano, known to many as Maria on Sesame Street. Her book, The Lowdown on the High Bridge, the story of how New York City got its water, is out now from the Bronx Children's Museum. You can find out more about Sonia online at soniamanzano.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.